BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I am your host, Jack Rico, and if this is your first time listening to the show... Thank you for discovering us. Well, as we begin November, I talk with music journalist Isabella Raigosa. She's a friend of the podcast, and I talk to her about the new trend of English language mainstream artists singing in Spanish. Why are they doing this, and will Hispanic audiences embrace it? Then I speak to Chilean writer Jose Ignacio Valenzuela. He's mostly known for writing telenovelas such as La Casa del Lado on Telemundo, and now he has a new book called To the End of the World. It's the first book of a new original trilogy, which has been compared to the likes of Harry Potter. We begin with Isabela Raigosa. Joining me now to discuss the new trend of English-language mainstream artists singing in Spanish is Isabela Raigosa. She is a music journalist who writes for the likes of Rolling Stone magazine, Remezcla, and more. Hey, Isabela, what's going on? Hey, Jack. Everything good? How are you? All good. Um, you know, it's so interesting. So the other day, I was listening to the new releases that were going on on Spotify. You know, like every single Friday, Spotify has like mm-hmm. their new releases of the new music. And I think it's important that... If you're in your late 30s, mid 40s, you're kind of going through that change in your life where you stop becoming um, or it's no longer a must to kind of keep track of the trends of what's happening in pop culture or anything like that. But I think that for me, it's I want to be that like when I'm 60, 70 years old, I still want to know what's going on in the pop culture world. I mean, I think it's very important to be like, you know, up to date with what's going on with you know, and it's true, like, um, a, when you are older, sometimes it's like, you realize when uh, you start caring less about pop, it's because you're older, you know, that's kind of a yeah. generational thing. <laughs> so, listen to Spotify, new releases, and all of a sudden, I'm listening to Khalid, the new album that he has, Sun City, and it's an EP, eight tracks, uh, his f- next full-length album is coming out in 2019, but I started listening to it and almost every track on that EP was awesome. I just loved it. One of my favorite albums of 2018 so far. And then the last mm-hmm. track, and this is the reason that I'm talking to you today. It's because the last track called Sun City featuring Empress of, uh, which is a Latin American so- singer songwriter, uh, was sung in Spanish by Khalid. And it's a little light mm-hmm. reggaeton. Have you had a chance to listen to it? Yeah, I did. I was tripping out. I was like, wait a minute. Is Khalid singing in Spanish? 
Oh, hold on. So I must have rewound it like two or three times just to make sure that Khalid said, I'm going to throw down a, a Spanish language jam. And it's a great tune. And that started kind of making me think. I go, okay, what? He's not Hispanic. Uh, he didn't grow up, you know, with a Latino family. He's not Latino himself. What is, why did he want to sing in Spanish? Yeah, it's interesting because uh, we are seeing it way more frequent than in the past. And there have been very prominent artists like Usher singing with Romeo Santos and Pharrell with J Balvin in Spanish uh, not so long ago, within the last one or two years. But as you know, Latin music has been booming and in turn it has been influencing all kinds of other music and artists. Uh, I think that if they want to continue, obviously, uh, uh, their mainstream relevancy, they have to uh, whiten up and diverse markets and, you know, team up with other dominant players of the scene, uh, which is really interesting because uh, Latin music right now is really, you know, taking over the airwaves as, you know, part of pop, American mainstream pop. Yeah. You know, historically, Isabela, I know that this is nothing new. I mean, we go back to Nat King yeah. Cole that was doing full-length Spanish language albums. We're talking that a lot of the 50s singers of their time right. wanted the to 40s, conquer... Exactamente. And so their whole thing was kind of becoming a global artist. And that mm -hmm. kind of stopped. I mean, in the mid-2000s, I think probably the most prominent superstar to do a Spanish-language album was Beyonce. Uh, she yeah. had that track with Shakira, but it was a full-length album just in Spanish. And that mm -hmm. was like, I can't believe it, but it felt like a random album. It wasn't particularly strategized. She didn't follow it up with something else. Um, and then I think recently she did uh, J Balvin's Mi Gente, where I, she yeah. might have sung in Spanish a little bit or, uh, yeah. or something along those lines. But there, it's never by design. It's almost like, hey, we're doing this because the record label told us or because it's a yeah. good idea. It's a good business proposition. And I kind of wanted to find out, is this a fad that's going on right now with English language mainstream artists singing in Spanish? Or is this something... Where, because it's not about a roots thing. It's not like Miguel. Remember Miguel? We had a conversation about this. Yes. Miguel was trying to rediscover his roots, and it just right, didn't sound Demi right. Lovato. Or Demi Lovato, <laughs> same way. That's not trying to rediscover their roots. These guys are just flat out. I think they're just in love with the language, and uh -huh. I think they know it's hot, and they want to collaborate with these guys, and maybe they want to do something outside of their comfort zone. How? Do you think this is a fad? Do you think that this is something that will be explored much more profusely and profoundly within the next couple of months, years? Is this staying or is this a fleeting moment? Well, um, obviously, like you did point out throughout history, we have seen booms where uh, Latin music has uh, played a role, in, uh, even though it hasn't been somewhat consistent in terms of like uh, U.S. mainstream media, but it only uh, makes an impact when it influences the Anglo audiences, obviously. And right now, the most recent 
uh, wave has been with, you know, Despacito and the uh, reggaeton scene, the urban scene, which has been really taking the airwaves. But as we also noticed, even just uh, uh, two decades ago with um, uh, Ricky Martin and Shakira's crossover, right? They ended up uh, really uh, uh, introducing, you know, Spanish bilingual music into American audiences. And at that point, there was, everybody was like, oh my God, the Latinos are taking over. But, you know, as we've seen with just even Joan Baez singing and uh, producing a record in Spanish at one point, and then Linda Ronstar uh, producing a, right. a, a you know, songs of her father, you know, the ranchera. So she was um, bringing up those roots again. So there have been a lot of moments in history where artists uh, who have somewhat of a Hispanic heritage or just want to uh, realize that they're realizing that there is an audience there. Uh, obviously, the labels are also looking at those kind of patterns and there, you know, and if you want to get sort of smart and continue having a long lasting career, then uh, you might as well just, uh, you know, conform to the dominating right. sounds that's currently booming. Now, is there a difference between the Justin Bieber Spanish language track in Despacito and what Khalid and Drake are doing? That is very interesting. Um, I don't know if there is a difference because none of them obviously have any familiarity and like fluency in, in the Spanish language, nor are they ethnically connected. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess the similarities is that they possibly created chemistry with artists that are dominant in that scene and somewhat have really just nailed it with in terms of that specific collaboration and I guess I would say that it's all about their particular chemistry that they have. Do you think that audiences, Hispanic, Latino audiences are going to buy Khalid, Drake, Justin Bieber and whoever else decides to sing in Spanish? I don't know, Taylor Swift, you know, out of nowhere. Uh, I get it. Uh, record label tells, you know, a lot of these artists, hey, you know, the Hispanic market is booming. They're hungry for uh, mainstream artists. The thing is, you know, pronunciation is a problem. If it sounds fake, we might yeah. not want it. Where do yeah, you think audience, exactly. uh, Hispanic audiences are at this moment where they just feel like they're in charge? Um, and they can either deny or embrace a particular artist yeah. and put them into the foundation, that top tier of mm-hmm. artists. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, let's look at let's look at Selena. Um, I think that's a very uh, popular example where her dad, who was her manager, Selena from uh, you know the Tejana artist, um, the legend of legends, the legend exactly. <laughs> not, not to be confused with Selena Gomez, but uh, she did not. Speak English. I'm sorry, she did not speak, speak Spanish, Spanish, but right. she sang in Spanish. So when she mm. went to Mexico to do her interviews, her dad was like, "You know what? Uh, you're successful with the Hispanics reciting in the U.S. because there's a lot of us here. But when you go to Mexico, you have to speak perfect That's Spanish. Right. Like it's, it's a really classic quote, and they're going to tear you apart. But you know what? I think it's just the charm that you have, and and how, and and I think that. We perceive that, and even just if if you really want to connect with that sort of market, it's gonna come off as genuine, authentic, or not, you know. And I think that that's very perceptive as a fan, as a uh, as a fan, as a writer, as a music journalist that you are. Where do you see music right now? 
kind of give me the state of where music, Hispanic and non-Hispanic music is at the moment. How are they interweaving with each other? And where do you see it in the next year? I'm not, I'm not even talking about five years. 2019. Mm-hmm. Is this Hispanic boom still going to stay? Or is this going to be like come and gone? Well, there have been very uh, important and unprecedented events that have happened in Latin music. Obviously, the one that I cited recently was Despacito, which had did become the most streamed track of all time, of all time, like at 5 billion, over 5 billion views on YouTube, uh, breaking YouTube records of all of it, since its beginning. And even with J Balvin's uh, Ginta, which earned a Guinness World Record, and obviously there's Romeo Santos who filled up the Yankee Stadium two consecutive nights, outbeating Metallica, Eminem, and Justin Timberlake. Like, so we've seen patterns consistently throughout in Latin music. And I do feel that because of the demographic shift that we are going through, and also I think that the political climate that we're in, there's been a divide. I think that uh, there's also been a resistance and uh, in terms of like embracing uh, our culture. I do feel that it's going to continue uh, fortifying. Um, and we've even seen it with like mainstream outlets like Rolling Stone. Uh, I remember uh, about a year or two, we had a conversation and you where you said there's not a lot of uh, representation in Latin music in these mainstream big outlets. But even with Global Four, which is monumental, they launched a Latin vertical. So they there are many outlets out there as well that are just doing a better job covering what has already been existing, So, it, which is bringing more awareness to the non-Hispanic market. I do feel that it's going to continue, you know, the presence is going to be stronger as we go on. If, if we, for a moment, drop the ball, I don't know if this momentum continues into 2019, 2020, but if they're smart, and they continue the collaborations with big artists. Uh, like I've always said, Maluma, Taylor Swift. I think Taylor Swift singing in Spanish, that would bring the house down in Latin America. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it's just a matter of those key moments coming. We know that Beyonce can do it. We know she's done it. Right. But Jay-Z hasn't. It'd be interesting to hear Justin Timberlake. Well, Justin Timberlake did it with Sync, But it'd be interesting to see Jay-Z kind of sing, you know, rap in Spanish Eminem, you know, maybe some of our favorite. Let's see what happens yeah. because I think that there's magic still to be achieved there and and hopefully uh, we'll get to see it in 2019. Isabella Raigosa, music journalist, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much, Jack. It's always a pleasure. And while we're in the conversation of music, here's three tracks burning up my playlist. Good vibes, Fuego and Nicky Jam. Missing You, Robin. Lost in Japan, Sean Mendes. Sean 
One of the New York Times choices for the 10 best Latin American writers of his time, Jose Ignacio Valenzuela, asks this question. How far would you go for love? That is the premise of To the End of the World, the first book in the internationally acclaimed Malamor trilogy. Jose Ignacio, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for this invitation. I'm very excited to share this time with you, and especially this is one of my first interviews in English ever. So I'm doing my best. Now, for you. thank you so much. It's an honor for me to be able to uh, do your first lang English language interview. And uh, why haven't you done an English language interview before? That's actually a very good question. Um, I think I was very busy <laughs> writing in Spanish and book touring in Spanish. Mm -hmm. And I'm also a, a screenwriter. I also write TV shows, I write telenovelas, and I write movies, and I write plays. So I've been very busy these past 20 years of my life. And it wasn't for me a priority to switch the language, to mm. cross over from one market to the other one. But Malamor Trilogy, this, uh, this book I'm presenting now in English in the U.S., was first a huge success in Latin America. So it was like the obvious thing for Malamor to grow into new languages. Mm -hmm. And the first language that was chosen by my editors was English. So tell me a little bit about the Malamor trilogy for the people who have not read the book and uh, to the end of the world. It's a love story. Tell me a little bit more about why it was such a huge hit in Latin America and why the expectations are the same in English. The Malamor trilogy in Spanish was was called by the critic, critics at that time the Latin American response to Harry Potter. <laughs> That's uh, great. Yes, <laughs> that was great because I'm a huge fan of the Harry Potter saga. Um, it's a fantasy trilogy full of magic, suspense. It's like a thriller uh, with mystery, with passion, with love, with a very exotic and mysterious serious place like La Patagonia, Patagonia in South, South, South America. In Argentina, um, near Argentina. In Argentina and Chile. And we Chile. shared the Patagonia between Chile and Argentina. And, and it was a, to, to write that trilogy was a huge process and intense work for me because it took me almost seven years of writing. Seven years I, of writing? Yes, I did. I did a lot, a lot. And I'm, when I'm saying a lot, it's a lot. It was almost three years of research. Uh, because, as I told you, the trilogy is set on the, in the Patagonia. So I was saying I needed to study about and legends and food and plants and herbs and animals and weather and everything around the Patagonia. And then it took me almost one year and a half for each book. So you can, you can make the count. It, it was almost seven, eight years. And the Malamor trilogy really changed my life. It changed my, my, the way that I'm seeing my career. Because, because of that trilogy, now I have fun. 
across Latin America. Mm -hmm. uh, I have loyal fans who follow me <laughs> through countries and who dress up like the characters when I'm in book signing. Um, and I've been book touring the Malamon trilogy for almost five years. So it, it's been an amazing ride. And I'm so happy to see that dream once in Spanish, now in English. I'm dying to go on tour with this book here in the U.S. I'm dying to meet new readers and to meet new fans. And that's what I'm, I'm thank you so much for this opportunity because you are helping me to achieve my dream. Well, I'm so happy to be able to contribute to your success. Um, it sounds like an amazing book. Uh, what was the attraction to the fantasy? Where did it spark from? Uh, what were your influences? And ultimately, how did you manage to want to write seven years of this process to make this book? I, I lived in Mexico. I used to live in Mexico for almost 10 years. It was a, a decade of my life. I, I, I lived in Mexico. And I, and I fell in love with myths and legends in Mexico. Mm -hmm. It's such a rich country, full of contrast, with, with such an amazing and powerful imaginary and living in Mexico, I decided that one day I'll, I'll write a book based on a fake legend. I wanted to create my own legend, a fake one. But I wanted to build a whole universe around that legend. And that's, that's how the legend of Malamor was created by me. And this legend tells, and of course, this is a fake legend. You are not going to find this legend on, <laughs> on, on history books or... On Wikipedia. You are going to find it, on, <laughs> to find it yeah, on, on Wikipedia or in Google. You are going to find it in the Malamor trilogy. Uh, but this legend tells the story of this little town called Almawe in Patagonia. And in that little town, very little town, the, the person, the people who lived in that town are unable to love. They can't love. Mm, because the town was cursed by a woman almost a century ago. So to that little town arrives Angela, the main character of the trilogy, because she's studying that legend. And she thinks that's a fake legend. She thinks that it's just a myth. She's a skeptic. A of course, she's a skeptic, so, but she's studying at, 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 in college, so she, she goes to that little town in the Patagonia after a very long trip. That's why the, the book, is the, the first book of the trilogy is called To the End of the World, because literally she's traveling to the end of the world. Right. But once she arrives to that little town, to Almauer, she discovered that the legend is not, a, it's not really a legend. It's a reality, and it's a curse. So she needs to find the cure for that illness. And, she, and for that, she needs to find the woman who cursed the town almost a century ago. Jose, when did you get into writing? I think I was born writing. <laughs> I think I was, actually, I was writing inside my mom's belly. Um, <laughs> writing for me is not, it's not just a job. I, actually, I don't see 
writing as a job. To write for me is, it's almost to breathe. And I write to understand the world. I write to make peace with some conflicts that I have inside my head. I write because that's the way I communicate with the world. So for me, when I start writing, probably before knowing how to write, I enjoy so much the process of writing, of research, the process of creating mm -hmm. character, creating situations. Um, I, I really love, and I, and, I, and I really love to explore different topics and genres and formats. That's why I'm, I'm also a screenwriter. I'm, I'm also a playwright. I'm, I'm also, I write telenovelas and I write short stories and I write novels and I write and I write books for adults, for young adults, and for kids. You cannot because stop I, writing. I cannot stop writing. <laughs> and, I, and I hope to be writing my last day in this place. Wow. Before we get into the process of writing for you and what that's like, I want to ask you, when was the first time that you noticed that you were really good at writing? That you just felt like, your writing could be published. Never. <laughs> Never. You're kidding Never. me. I don't think I'm a very good writer. I want to become one one day. But I'm, I'm still learning so much. And the only way to learn how to write is writing. Right. So that's why probably that's why I write the whole day. And, but but and if the whole week. But if you don't think you're a good writer and if you're and you're having success, who are you comparing yourself to that doesn't allow you to think you're as good? Well, uh, I'm comparing to Stephen King. I'm comparing to Gabriel Garcia Marquez. <laughs> um, I'm comparing myself to Juan Rulfo in Mexico. Um, and you know, I don't my goal is not to be the best writer. I don't want to, I don't want to, to be proud of myself. I want to be proud of my writing. And I want to give 100% or 110% every time I'm in front of my computer creating a new story. That's my goal. And I want to have the best tools to be able to achieve that. That's what I'm always studying. That's what I'm always reading. That's what I'm always participating in workshops and I'm traveling because I want to have the best tools to be able to do my craft. You just mentioned reading. And one of the things about writing, to get better as a writer, you have to write. But there's also one thing that you also need to do is you also need to read a lot to understand yeah. styles, to understand... Uh, insights and, and perception of the way writers do their thing. Uh, yeah. What what books do you read? What kind of books do you read? Do you read history books? Do you read modern novels, nonfiction, science fiction? I think I'm a fiction guy. I love fiction. Of course, I'm. I also enjoy a lot a lot nonfiction, especially when I'm studying. Uh, but joy for pleasure, I always go with fiction. And I think I'm a very eclectic re reader because I enjoy, of course, classics. I really love, I, I, I know the name in Spanish, La Iliada, La Odisea. 
um, Gabriel García Márquez, as I told you, uh, Rulfo, um, but also I like modern writers as Michel Ulebeck. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I really enjoy rewriting, re- rereading Hemingway, for example. I was reading El Viejo y el Mar the other, the other day. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm very eclectic. And because I'm a writer, I go to a lot of book fairs. So a lot of colleagues give me their new books. So I'm always trying to read what's new, what it's happening these days. Right. So I, I can be reading a new a bestseller and at the same time the Iliad. How, how many books do you read a week, a month? Right now, six different books. <laughs> it's interesting because we're living in an era where the books of, for example, the lifestyle of the 1950s, people would just pick up a book and read and transport themselves into some sort of imaginary world. Um, but today in 2018, books are not as appreciated anymore. You see it all over the place. Here in New York City, for example, uh, they're closing down bookshops almost every other day. And yes. we're losing the, that literary culture of New York City that used to be so prevalent back in the 1960s and 70s, even including the 80s. Um, yes, even the 80s. What is your outlook on the lack of appreciation of books today and why do you think that reading a book should be so important? I think reading a book is a fundamental part of an education. Not only because when you read, you are going to discover new words, not only because if you, if you enjoy reading, you are, you, will, you, are not going, you are not going to be alone again in your life, but also because reading gives you the possibility of dreaming. And that's going to be very helpful even with math or physics or even chemistry, because you are going to be able to see inside your head some things that that you cannot see in the real world. So for me, it's so important always to relate Reading with joy, because reading never should be an imposition. And when you understand that opening a book should be as fun as to play stalker on, or to play a game, a, a video game, when you, under, when you understand that, I think you become, you, you, you are at least closer to become a better person and a better reader. Tell me about your process of writing. Do you take the phone cord out of the wall? Uh, Do you escape to a remote island? Uh, Do you lose all (laughs) contact with people? Um, Do you have distractions that you turn off? Tell me about your process, your lifestyle when it comes to writing a book. Well, let me tell you that I'm the absolute opposite of the myth of a writer. I grew up in a family of writers. My maternal grandmother was a very well-known poet in Chile. My aunt, Ana Maria, she's currently one of the most important YA, young adult writers in Chile. And so I decided, since I was very 
little, I decided that one day I would become a writer. And I wanted, and I wanted to be a very mm. classical writer. I wanted to have my own studio, a very beautiful studio with a typing machine at that time, of course, um, with books and a big window. And I wanted to be alone and uh, because I, I, I wanted to, to be just by myself, to be able to, to, to think and to express myself in a very isolated location. The truth is, I've been book touring my books for the past seven years. So I was forced to learn to write in planes, in airplanes, <laughs> even in taxis. Uh, in oh, wow. So the whole dream of my profession and my, the possibility of to be, to be alone in a beautiful house in the middle of nowhere was just a dream that I wasn't able to achieve. This day I'm, I'm becoming, I think, I, I think as me as, as a todo terreno. Writer, <laughs> uh, uh, yes. So my process, the only the only thing that that keeps being very important for me is the um, during the writing process is the research. The large part comes first, and that part for me is research. I really need to know well what I'm writing about. And as I told you, for example, for the Malamor trilogy, I researched for two years, three years. And, and that's the only thing that it's non-negotiable in my life. Before we continue with the book, I'm very fascinated with the novellas that you have been a part of. Uh, three of them, for most of the people that are listening to the podcast now, you... Um, La wrote La Casa de Alado, which I heard was a huge hit in Chile. Huge yeah. hit in Chile, Dama y Obrero. Uh, a friend of mine named yeah. Shalim Ortiz was in that novella. Um, and Diabla. Uh, Santa Diabla. How different is it writing for novellas than it is for with books? Uh, I have written more than 21 or 22 telenovelas. And I've been very lucky because um, all the telenovelas that I've written, all of them are originals by me. I, I was... I was able it's incredible, to, man. Yes, yes. Uh, and I've been very lucky because I, I'm positively sure that's not the way it works for a lot of writers. But uh, in my case, I was able to create my own telenovelas. All of them are my creations. Uh, so I'm very proud and happy. It's very different to write a telenovela than to write a book because of the format, because of the way you tell the story. A telenovela, for example, those three telenovelas that you, you name, all of them have more than 100 episodes. La Casa de Al Lado had actually 100, 168. Yeah, so th these were the episodes. old formats of novellas uh, from yeah. before. And I feel like in the last maybe two to three years, there's been a rapid change with the new novella. It's now called a super yeah, serie. The telenovelas, yeah, the telenovelas now are called series and they have 40, 60 episodes, but the pace is different. 
the edition is different, the, the topics are different. Mm-hmm. We're living exciting times because it's so changing so fast. The audiences are changing so in front of our eyes. Right. But in my case, for me, the, to have to have had and to have the possibility of, of writing a telenovela has been amazing because I've been able to express myself to very big audiences. And I was able to explore themes and subjects that for me are very important. And I was able to show that to people around the world. And that's fantastic for me. And they are so fun. In Latin Latin America, we live as telenovela characters. We invented (laughs) melodrama. We invented melodrama. Yes. Melodrama is the only genre that Latin America invented. So at least myself, I'm very proud about melodrama. And if if you think in Latin America, we live very melodramaticamente. How do you see the telenovela today since you're someone who has contributed to creating brand new stories to novellas? Novellas aren't the same anymore. I feel like they're slowly becoming obsolete. I feel like in five years, we might not have novellas anymore. Um, What is your point of view on novellas today in 2018? Do you think they're here to stay? Or do you think they're going to completely change to the point where we don't recognize them anymore? I don't think telenovelas are going to disappear. I really don't think that. Telenovela, the telenovelas are part of the way we understand Latin America. But I think telenovelas are going to change. And they are changing. Society is changing. Families are changing. We don't know what is a family, a traditional family today. That was, very, that's a, that was a question very easy to answer 30 years ago. A family is a man, a husband, a wife, and three kids and a dog. That, that was a family 30, 40 years ago. And telenovelas were products for that kind of family. Mm-hmm. But today, we have so many possibilities for families. We have so many different types of, family, of families. So we are going we are starting to see specific telenovelas for the different families that we have today. I don't think they're going to disappear, but I, but I think they're going to become more specific. We're going, to, we're going to start to see telenovelas for children. We're going to start to see telenovelas for women. We're going to start to see telenovelas for men. We are mm. going to start to see telenovelas for young adults. Um, musical telenovelas, um, telenovelas uh, that are going to help you to learn some skills. Are, I, I think we're going to start to see different kinds of telenovela. And the best examples for that are the narcos telenovelas right. these days. But even narco telenovelas are doing that well on the screen these days. I think because people are kind of just, it's too dark, it's too violent, it's too bloody. And uh, I think we want something a little bit more happy. Before I let you go, Jose Ignacio, can you tell people why they should pick up To the End of the World and read it from from the beginning to the end? I think if you want to be amazed by a very 
edgy and addictive story to the end of the world is your book. And especially because this is an adventure book. This is like a book from Julio Verne or Emilio Salgari. It's the classic adventure book. But the main character, the, the powerful character is a woman. And that's, a, that's why Malamor Trilogy was such a, um, a success in Latin America, because the three m most important characters are three powerful women. And each female has their very specific characteristic. They are very different between them. Um, and it was really fun for me, but also challenging as a man, writing these female characters. Um, so in order to better understand the experience of female embodiment, I read a lot about feminism, and female relationships, and of course, stories written by women. And, and I interviewed my sisters and my mom and my grandmother. <laughs> and I think the result is a very powerful book. And I was told by readers and fans that it's, this is not a book that you can put away. This is not a book that you can put down. Jose Ignacio Valenzuela is the author of To the End of the World, the first book from his Malamor trilogy, which is now available in bookstores across the country and in digital platforms like Amazon. Jose Ignacio Valenzuela, thank you so much for being on the Highly Relevant Podcast. Thank you so much. That's it for episode 96 of the Highly Relevant Podcast. I want to thank music journalist Isabella Raigosa and author Jose Ignacio Valenzuela for coming on the show. And I hope you guys enjoy the conversations as well. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so by sharing us on social media and telling all your friends about it. Also, you can reach me on Instagram at Jack Rico and Twitter at Jack Rico Official. Also, remember to catch my new episode of Consumer 101 on NBC this Saturday morning at 11 a.m. I'm Jack Rico. See you next week on another episode of Highly Relevant. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.